God, as we open your word, help us to be open to whatever you have to say. Help us to hear from you, to know what your word is teaching, to respond accordingly. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll be moving in our church gathering this morning, helping us to hear your word without distraction. And God, we pray that um, your word will just be very clear to us and that we'll hear the gospel in it. Make us humble, make us hungry. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. We're gonna be working through the text as we go today instead of having the traditional scripture reading. What's wrong with the world? Why is there so much hurt and suffering? Why am I lonely? If God is real, why does he feel so distant? Who is Satan? How does he work? How does sin and temptation work? What is it? All questions that find their original answer today in our text in Genesis chapter three. We've been in Genesis for four weeks already, and it's been all rainbows and butterflies. Well, not rainbows yet, I guess. Noah's still a few weeks away. But it's been pretty happy so far. God has made the world and he's made it good. And today we come to one of the most important chapters in the entire scripture. It's a a chapter that's woven throughout the entire biblical narrative that goes all the way from Genesis to the end of Revelation, as you will see as we go on today. And it's one of the most important chapters for us to understand in our Christian walk for how we respond to God and how we know God and why life is the way that it is. It's a chapter that is familiar for many of us, that, uh, that many of us have heard since we were children. Uh, we're familiar with this story. We've seen picture books of this story, but I want you to listen to it with open ears and with new eyes because it might not be everything that you assume that it is. There's a, a tendency for us as we hear a story that we've heard many times to treat it like a lullaby. You know, we sing songs that are familiar to our children so that they might go to sleep. And so this is a song that as we go through it, it might feel and might sound like a lullaby to you, something that you've heard before. But friends, it's exciting, it's good. There's so much truth in this that's encouraging to our souls and it points us to Christ in so many ways. So let me just start with verse one. If you have your Bibles, open them, Genesis chapter three. I hope you have them. Let's, let's dive in here and let's look at this very first verse and I want you to see what's surprising here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now wait a minute. We have a serpent, new, new character here. And look what happens next. He says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. You might ask, well, did snakes talk in the Garden of Eden? Did, animal, did the animals talk? No, but this one did. And this should be surprising as we come to this place. As we see a snake talking, a serpent is talking to Eve. That should shock us. It's weird. And most of us throughout history have understood this serpent to be Satan. Although, friends, it's never told us in this passage that this serpent is Satan. We just know that he's the serpent and he's described as more crafty than all of the other beasts. 
Now the word for serpent or snake in the scripture is seraph, which might be a little bit of a shocking word for you because some of you are more familiar with the plural form of seraph, which in Hebrew, the way you make something plural isn't by adding an S, but it's by adding an I-M to the end. So the plural of seraph would be seraphim. Now that's a word that many of us have heard. If you're familiar with your scripture, if you grew up in church, you know that the vision of Isaiah from Isaiah 6 is that he saw the seraphim around the throne of God. Now that's a shocking image now when you think about it like that. Why does Isaiah use that word and why do our Bible translators leave it in the Hebrew form of seraphim? They transliterate it, they don't actually give it a name. We often have interpreted that to be understood as those are angels, but he's not using the traditional word cherubim for angels, he's using a different word for angels, seraphim. Your scriptures might have a subnote saying or burning ones, but that's an odd translation as well. Because every time you find the word seraph in scripture, it's referencing a snake. And so here we have a serpent who we understand to be Satan, traditionally, historically. But he's described, but the same type of creature is described as an angel elsewhere, which actually goes along with what we understand about Satan. We understand from the book of Ezekiel that Satan is a fallen angel. And so we, here we have this serpent who is talking in the garden. He's different. He's more crafty than all of the other beasts. And another reason why we might think that this is Satan is because Revelation chapter 12 describes Satan as the great dragon, the ancient, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. We have reason to believe that this snake in the garden is not crawling on his belly. We don't know exactly how he's approaching uh, the man and the woman at this point because it doesn't say. It shows more than it tells. But we have reason to think that he's not crawling on his belly because later on that's part of the curse that God gives to the serpent, that he would crawl on his belly. And so is this snake walking around? Does this snake have wings? Is he flying around in the garden? I don't know. And no one really does but it's something that we can think about and see with new eyes. And what does the serpent say? He's speaking to the woman and he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? When he, say, when he says, did God actually say, he does something unique here and it's meant to bring attention to it because last week we mentioned how the author has swapped from using the vague more general term for God, Elohim, and he started to use the specific name of the Lord, which is Yahweh. And in the entire narrative from chapter two to chapter four, the Lord God, Yahweh God, is used over and over and over again. But when the snake approaches the woman, he says, did God. He leaves out Yahweh, the impersonal God. You see, he's trying to strip God of his personal nature. He's stripping God of the way that he has already cared for Eve and provided for Eve and Adam in the garden in so many ways. He's subtly trying to change the way that Eve thinks about God. And then he actually slightly twists the truth. He asks a misleading question. He says, did God actually say, did he really say this? Did he actually say that you shall not eat any tree in the garden? Do you see how he's framing that? He's making God look stingy. When we just spent an entire week studying in, the, in chapter two how God is a generous God 
who gives over an abundance. He gives provision. He gives marriage. He gave this garden. He gave them so much. But Satan here, the serpent, he's attacking that. He's painting God as the bad guy. A.W. Tozer, a famous author from the 20th century, he has this really famous quote where he says, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And so Satan here is attacking what Eve thinks about when she thinks about God. Instead of thinking of God as this benevolent, generous God who's been so kind to her, she begins to think about God as stingy. He places the idea in her head that God is actually stingy. How do you view God? Has Satan used one of these tactics in you? God is a stingy God. God is a distant God. He's a cruel God. Many of these ideas about who God is are planted there by the evil one. He wants us to not understand who God is because when you understand who God is, you see that he's lovely, that he's beautiful, that he wants to have relationship with us. But we oftentimes believe the lies. Satan is laying bait. But what I want you to see is that Satan is not a mugger. He's a con artist. He doesn't walk up to the little old lady, hit them in the head and take their purse. Satan walks up to the little old lady and he tells them a sob story and they give him his pur- their purse. He's not what we think he is. He's deceptive. You start to like what he has to say. This is why I get so frustrated with the way that churches talk about the way that Satan works. The way that Christians talk about the way that Satan works. Because there's a theology that that basically is Satan is behind all of my bad days and God is behind all of my good days. And when I have a bad day or things just aren't going my way, that must be Satan's work. But friends, when Satan is working, he's not hitting you upside the head. When Satan is working, he's deceiving you about who God is and convincing you to live your life for him and for yourself as opposed to for God. He's a con artist. He's a deceiver. He attacks with lies. He tells you that God is not good, that Jesus is not enough, that you would be happier if you just lived for yourself and did whatever you want to do. He's the doctor of deception. We all hear his lies. You're, you might feel like, oh, I, right now I think that he's been attacking. Yes. He attacks through temptation constantly, each and every day. We hear these lies. You are not enough. Jesus is not enough. You need more. You can't be happy where you are. You gotta make changes. You gotta take your life into your own hands. And the woman, how does she respond in this temptation, in this story but she nibbles the bait. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. This is actually good. She corrects him. She says, no, Satan, you're wrong, serpent. We can eat from the trees. She stands strong here for a moment. And then she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now Eve did mostly good here. She said, no, you're wrong, and here's what God said, but then she didn't remember properly, or actually, we, we should give Eve a little bit more slack here, because when we look in chapter two, when God said, don't eat of the one tree in the garden, where was Eve? She wasn't even there yet. She was still one of, one of Adam's ribs. And so what she's quoting back to the serpent right here, this is probably what Adam told her. Adam, in his desire to protect her, or in his desire to, to be truthful, he adds, he could have added the law himself. We don't know if this came from Eve or if this came from Adam. It might just be all that she's ever known. But she adds to God's law. And this is religion. We say we help irreligious and religious people to become gospel people. And we place laws on ourselves all the time that say this is what makes me righteous, this is what makes me good. And that's religion. And so Eve makes up a new rule. She says, you can't even touch it when God never gave her that rule. And so she's nibbling at the bait. And the serpent, he hooks his prey. If you know anything about fishing, when you, when you feel the nibble, you have to set the hook. And the serpent, this is how he does it. Verse four, he says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here's a really interesting temptation. Because the serpent says, and this is the, the main hook that he gives the woman, he says, you'll be like God. That is a very interesting temptation because it's the one thing that she already has. The people were made in the image of God. They're already like God, are they not? And so what Satan tempts her with is the one thing she already has, and he still does that today. The nature of sin is to tell you, you need more when you have all you need in Christ. The essence of sin is telling you, you need more respect, you need more Approval, you need more success, you need more money, you need more love, pleasure, whatever it is, when you have all you need in Christ. Eve is hooked, and the serpent starts reeling her in. And how does he reel her in? He doesn't use a lot of words. He reels her in using her own desires. You see, she's being reeled away. In fact, at this point in the story, it's hard to tell who's doing the reeling. The hook is, is in her mouth, but she might start reeling herself in. You see, her heart has already left God's intention. She's already fallen for the trap. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now notice this about this text, that everything that the woman saw and everything that the woman did, she rationalized. The author even tells us her rationalization. She saw that it looked good. We knew that. God created the garden full of trees that were pleasant for, to look at and pleasant for food. She saw that it looked good and that it would be good food. 
and they would make her wise. She knew that too. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It would give her wisdom. She's rationalizing this moment. And as she rationalizes it and says, all of this is good. And so I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to pursue my own desires here. God's keeping this from me. Friends, we're really good at giving ourselves exceptions to God's commands. We're really good at rationalizing our sin, are we not? I've never heard anyone say, you know what? I think I'm going to cheat on my spouse and ruin my marriage today. I'm going to go out here and do it. See you later, honey. No, we rationalize it every step of the way. We say, oh, but I could keep it a secret, but uh, it would make me happy, but she doesn't love me, but he is uh, unsatisfactory at home. I've never heard someone walk out their door and go, feels like a good day for embezzlement. No, we rationalize it every step of the way. We know what is evil, but as we look at the evil more and more, we see that evil starts to not look so evil when we can maybe give it good reasons. But I need the money. I'm going to use the money to help people, whatever it might be. We rationalize things that are against God's word. And we see Eve's desires here have drawn her away from God's command. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, was a German theologian, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, uh, well-known guy. He, he was part of an assassination attempt upon Hitler and was put to death in a concentration camp bef- just days before um, he was, the, the concentration camp was liberated. And he wrote prolifically on many different things. And on his, in his book on temptation, he has quite a good description of the way that we feel in our temptation. So hear what he has to say. With irresistible power, desire seizes master over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of him. And the lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. Basically, he's saying we become idiots. And the question presents itself, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expected now of me here in my particular situation to appease this desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. I've been there. I've been there this week. You've been there. We know what this feels like. We know what it feels like. This is the same way that Satan attacked Jesus in the wilderness. He comes to Jesus and 
in a moment of strength. He's been going through a fast for 40 days, but also a moment of weakness because he's been going through a fast for 40 days. And he tempts him and he says, here's some bread. If you're really God, prove yourself. Make bread. Tell that rock to become a bread, piece of bread. And Jesus says, I find my sustenance on every word from the Lord. Do you see how Jesus says, no, I will only listen to the words of God. I will not listen to what you have to say to me, Satan. He stands firm in the midst of temptation. Satan's temptation is so tricky, too, in that situation. It doesn't sound like anything evil. It says, you are God. Make make the, the rock a piece of bread. Can't you do that? And he can. But it's giving in to what Satan is telling him to do, that he is autonomous. He makes the decisions for himself, and he should be living selfishly. In this story, at this point, so far the serpent has only spoken to Eve. We've only seen Eve. We've only seen the woman. We've only seen the serpent. Where's the man? Where's Adam here? Oh, here here he is, verse 6, halfway through. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Standing right there the whole time, hearing everything. He could have stepped up. He could have said something. We cannot demonize Eve in this situation. They were both deceived. No less guilty. So they eat of the fruit, which just a a, a quick caveat. It says fruit. We might have apple in our mind. We don't know that was apple. It might have been a pineapple. It might have been a banana. We just don't know. It could have been anything. Sorry, I'm like going off on it (laughs) and as they eat of the fruit they're supposed to die right that's what we assume will happen that that's what we assume will happen that's what has been said you cannot eat of that tree or you will die verse seven what happens it's not death then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths Wait a second. Who said that when they would eat of the fruit that their eyes would be open? Was that God or was that the serpent? It was the serpent. The serpent was right. He tempted them by telling the truth, but it was only a half truth because death was coming. And death started in that moment. You see, his lie was sneaky. The serpent insinuated that the fruit would make them happy by saying that they wouldn't die. They'd have their eyes open. Instead of feeling happy, they immediately, what's the first thing that they feel? The first feeling post-sin, the first sinful feeling that we might say is shame. They knew that they were naked. They knew that they were not clothed and they felt shame. And why didn't they die? Why isn't this the end of the story as we would expect it to be? It's because the death came later, that they spiritually died in that moment. Romans 5 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And you, friends, also are a child of Adam and a daughter of Eve here today. As Aslan says in Prince Caspian, that's enough to, to raise the head of any beggar and to bring low the head of any king. 
Apart from Christ, you were dead in your transgressions. Apart from Christ, you were walking in sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air. You didn't think it was that way because you had rationalized it. You said, no, I'm really a pretty good person. And the reality is that apart from Christ, we live for ourselves, each and every one of us. It doesn't mean that you are as bad as what you could be, but it means that you are without hope because you are spiritually depleted and spiritually dead. The death that God promised was a spiritual death and an eventual physical death. And so Adam and Eve, they're, they're hiding, making clothes out of fig leaves like a couple of people dropped on a deserted island in a reality TV show. And they hear God. Isn't that, isn't that a show? I think that it's a show. Um, like where you're, uh, it's called, anyways, I don't know what it's called. There is a reality show called that. Um, I've never actually seen it. I just heard about it from someone. And verse eight, hence I can't tell you what it's called. Hence verse, and verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do they do when they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden? Notice we're back to saying the Lord. We're back to his, his personal sacred name. What do they do? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so God calls out to them and he says, where are you? God is seeking them. He wants to be near. And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God asks Adam the question that all parents know well when they approach their toddler holding a crayon with drawing all over the wall and they say, did you do this? And the toddler immediately finds some excuse and God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And here we see that the man do what the toddler immediately wants to do. He says, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? Notice, no, it, he's being gentle this whole process. What, what have you done? Defend yourself. And, and she says, it was the serpent. She, they're just passing the buck. The buck is getting passed. It's something that anyone in management knows very well how this works. The, the buck gets passed. Anyone with multiple kids every day faces this dilemma of the buck getting passed. At breakfast, I faced this dilemma this morning of the buck getting passed through the family. And they don't want to take personal responsibility. They're rationalizing again. It's not really my fault. You see, they told me something that was irresistible. I had to do what they said. And they're not saying anything that's untrue. Again, there's a lot of truth, but a lot of half-truths in this passage. Adam is saying it was the woman. The woman's saying it was the serpent. They're refusing to own up to it themselves. You know, I'm waiting for that daytime TV uh, show where someone comes on the show to talk about all of their problems and how they've, they've been so terrible. And they say, you know what? My mom was great. My dad was great. I'm just a bonehead. Where they don't pass the buck to anyone else. 
but we will never get that because we are great at making excuses and rationalizing our sin. But when you come to Christ, you realize none of those excuses matter. It doesn't matter if you say they did it or he did it. The reality is you don't have excuses. All you have is Christ. You see, this buck would continue to get passed until it got passed all the way to Christ, and he said, that's fine. I will take the blame. I will hang for your blame, and I will bear the wrath that you deserve on my cross. You see, the, pu- the buck does get passed, and it continues to get passed. Christ is better than all of your excuses, because in Christ you can stand there naked, but covered in righteousness. You can be naked and unashamed again. He sees you as you are, yet you are covered in his righteousness. Adam and Eve, they pass the blame, and Jesus takes it on. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we trust in Christ, we receive that righteousness. Now, what happens in the story, after they pass the buck to the next person and then to the next person, is we see God lay out three different curses. One to the serpent, next to the woman, and then lastly, to the man. And so his first curse is to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Whether this is a literal uh, banishing to the ground, however that worked, or it's a figurative posture of defeat on the ground, eating dust in defeat. It's at least that. It It might be both. In verse 15, he continues his curse, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium, the first gospel. God promises that there will be enmity between the serpent and between the offspring of the woman and that one day the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's child, but he will bruise the serpent's head. And as Christ hung on the cross, this was his bruising of the heel because it wasn't a death that meant eventual forever death, but he rose victoriously on the third day. And in so doing, as his heel was bruised, Christ crushed the head of the serpent, of the evil one. Here, it's the proto-evangelium because it's the first gospel. It's the first sign of the future promise of God. Buried here in Genesis chapter 3, God is promising that Christ would come and he would win the victory. He will do what Adam should have done and stomp the head of the serpent as he is attacking. Verse 16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Sin is the reason for pain and childbearing. Sin is the reason for oppression and injustice. Sin is the reason that our work is less satisfying and frustrating. Sin is the reason for death and destruction and for the unraveling of the world. With this act, the world became unharmonious with God because Adam and Eve chose autonomy over living in obedience with God. The world is filled with suffering, hurt, death, oppression, and injustice. And you might ask, why is that fair? How is it fair that Adam made this decision and I have to bear the burden for it? Well, friends, first of all, two things with that. First, I'm not sure you would have done any better In fact, uh, from looking at the history of your life, you wouldn't, okay? If anybody here says, you know, so far I haven't sinned, maybe little William somewhere can can help us with this, but so far I haven't sinned, therefore I should have been the representative. No, we all would have done the same thing. We all would have sinned. But secondly, you can't say it's unfair that you receive Adam's death, but fair that you receive Christ's righteousness in his life. You see, God works in this way. He credits someone else with another's failure or another's success. And just as death reigned through one man, Romans chapter five, life will reign all the more abundantly that we will get to glorify and enjoy his grace because of what Christ has done for us. Adam sinned, so therefore death reigned, but Christ lived righteously, so therefore we enjoy the benefits of what he has accomplished for us, conquering sin and Satan. Verse 20, the man called his wife Eve. It's interesting that he's naming naming her right now. That has some really interesting like uh, literature reasons. It's kind of like an inclusio because this story kind of starts with Adam naming the, all the creatures in the, in the world and now it's ending with him naming his wife. And so at the very center of this, we see this, this temptation narrative that's happening in the middle. Um, so he's naming his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Do you see his first act? Before he kicks them out of the garden, God is still generous and kind with them. He doesn't come unhinged. He makes every provision possible. They just messed up everything, yet he is patient and kind. God sacrifices these animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. It's the first sacrifice in a long line of sacrifices that lead us to Jesus. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. We, we noticed this the first week that we did this. This is, this is Trinity talk. God is speaking among the, the, the three persons of the Godhead. He's become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and, take, and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the the way of the tree of life. Now as we're concluding here what I what I want you to see is the temple imagery that is being brought here with Eden. Eden, as we mentioned the first week, is seen as a temple in this creation that God has made. He's created the whole world, and he's made a special garden where he will walk through the cool of the day. And what is the temple? But it's the place where we go on earth to experience the presence of God. We have reason to believe that this, this garden was on a high place, just as the temple was in a high place in Jerusalem. It's a city on a hill, Jerusalem is. So the temple is in a high place. Eden was in a high place. In, this temp- in the temple in Jerusalem, the door always faced east. And here, Adam is being dro- drove out of the garden in the east. And what is set to protect the, the garden but two cherubim, which are the same angelic creatures that are on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And on the Ark of the Covenant, this represents the presence of God here on earth. It's only kept in the very center of the temple where the Holy of the Holies is, where the priest is only allowed to enter once a year. And they say that it was such a dangerous job that they would tie a rope around the foot of the priest, that if he went in there, accidentally unclean or did something wrong, that way they have some way to get him out of there because no one else wants to go in there after he just falls dead in the presence of God. And so the author is going to quite extent to show that humans are now separated from God. We no longer live at peace. We've rebelled. We're we're kicked out of his presence until we get to Jesus whose entire purpose is to bring us back into the presence of God. He's uniquely qualified to do so, as he's 100% man and 100% God. He can make peace between the two. And after he bore the wrath that we deserve and died on the cross, what happened? But the curtain in the temple was torn in two, representing the presence of God is now accessible to all humans throughout the world. It's representing the restored access that we have through the blood of Christ. As it says in Hebrews chapter 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Christ is our hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Today, friends, we find ourselves in the place of Adam hiding in the garden. Many of us are there feeling naked and ashamed, playing this silly game of hide-and-seek. It's like playing hide-and-seek with a child who goes and lays under the covers really still and says, do you see me? And God sees you wherever you are, wherever you are hiding, whatever sort of fig leaves that you've put on yourself to make yourself look better and less ashamed. And he's not mad but he's calling out and he's saying, my child, where are you? I want you to be near. And nearness is possible now through Christ. 
You see, this posture has changed. Now he sent his own son to pay the penalty that we deserve. Second Adam from above has come, Jesus Christ, and borne the penalty that we deserve. We don't have to hide under the fig leaves anymore, but we come in the full robe of Christ's righteousness. And he invites us into that full relationship with God again. You see, we're invited back into the garden. And one day, when Christ returns, the whole world will be full of his glory. It will not be just a return back to the Garden of Eden, though. That would be a colossal waste of time. Why did we do all of this in between? Instead, it would be far more glorious and we'll know him more fully. And the way the Revelation 22 describes this is beautiful. I've never seen it until this week. I've never seen all the parallels between the Garden of Eden and the new creation in Revelation 22, but hear how awesome and better it is. Revelation 22, John the Revelator, he has this vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the hope that we're all longing for, that we have in Christ and our future that we, that we look forward to, our eternal resting place. And he says this, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Now, if we remember, Eden had a river that ran through it. But there was a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city also. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, there it is. It doesn't appear throughout all scripture again. We don't hear about it again. But yet, right here at the end, the tree of life reappears and we have access to it now. It's in the middle of the road. The, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. All right. I was so excited about the tree of life and whatnot. <laughs> So close. Okay, batteries are almost dead, or we're dead. Let's keep going. Okay. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Oppression will cease. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, is what we most long for, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's kind of weird, but you have to think that he is saying he owns us. He's, he loves us. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their, their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the day that we long for. Let us go to him today and have a piece of that as we await our eternal inheritance. That is the Garden of Eden, but filling the whole world and far better and knowing God in more intimacy that we may never be alone and that the nations may be healed and that sin might be destroyed. As we wait for that day, each week we have an opportunity to receive a communion meal. And uh, this is a sacred meal that we receive in uh, response to what Christ has done for us. On the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so each week as we participate in this meal, we're being reminded of Christ's work on our behalf. And we're being restored to that. We're being reminded of it. We're, we're seeing our, our souls as um, repentant and made new by Christ. Uh, church, let's stand and uh, 
prepare ourselves to sing and receive and receive this meal. Father, as we receive uh, this communion meal today, may our hearts seek you above all else. Help us to fight sin. Help us to repent of the sin that is in our lives and to trust in Christ's completed work on our behalf. And God, I pray that we'll see Jesus as more beautiful today than we ever have seen him before. And God, help us as a church to glorify you, to magnify you, and to find our hope completely in you and not in our own righteous deeds. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.